This is The Drive with Josh Graham podcast. Tune into The Drive weekday afternoons 3 to 7 on Sports Hub Triad. Two of the ACC's three best teams and two of the top ten teams in America met at Cameron last night, and you won't find the difference maker in the game on any stat sheet. Florida State has more depth and was more rested than Duke last night. However, it was obvious they weren't mentally prepared for Cameron Indoor Stadium. That's why the Blue Devils won. Because quite frankly, even though Coach K was elated to see his team bounce back from the emotion of winning in surprising fashion in Chapel Hill, his Blue Devils didn't really play well last night. They were tired. 21 turnovers, a lot of them being careless, leading to home run layups by Trent Forrest and others. Two days removed from that epic game. Duke, at one point, was trailing 52-50 and were just beginning to give in. Florida State was on a 5-0 run. Coach K called timeout with 8 minutes and 31 seconds left to go. He did so right before they were about to have a media timeout, but it was at a point of desperation. We all could see it. Coach K saw it as well. He even admitted as such after the game. When they went ahead 52-50, and instead of waiting for the eight minute, I, you know, we, were, we were ready to get knocked out. And uh, so we called a timeout. Alex came in, and Alex gave us five quick points. And that last 8:29, we were terrific. And also, Florida State wasn't. Florida State never took control in the final eight minutes of the game. It was an opportunity for the Knowles to send a message to the nation. Hey, we are a legit national title contender. We beat Louisville in the Yum Center, and we could have beaten Duke inside Cameron Indoor Stadium. They didn't because many of these guys didn't know what that environment was going to be like. In fact, the aforementioned Trent Forrest, he is the only Seminole before last night to ever play in Cameron. The last trip for Florida State was in 2017. He was the best player on the floor. How's this for a stat line, Robert Walsh? 18 points, 9 rebounds, 8 steals, almost a triple-double, points, rebounds, and steals in Cameron versus one of the best defensive teams of the country to go along with 4 assists. I'd say that's a pretty decent night. I wouldn't argue with you. Robert Walsh, the producer of this show, saw your Dylan in here as well. As an assistant producer, you could tweet us at SportsUpTriad, 336-777-1600. What did you make of Duke, Florida State last night? Nobody else on the floor was great for FSU. So while Forrest was, as the only player who's ever played in Cameron before, as a freshman on that 2017 FSU team, I don't think it's coincidental that nobody else was great. And specifically, nobody could hit foul shots other than Trent Forrest. At the free throw line, Florida State was 12 of 20. 12 of 20 from the line. Kind of like the North Carolina game. You just got to hit your free throws. It sounds so simple. We try to make things difficult on ourselves. Read the stats, the analytics. Don't look past the advanced saber metric of free throw shooting. You can't really even blame Florida State, though. There is 
nothing like Cameron. Like, if you're used to playing in ACC venues, used to playing on big stages, you're probably used to watching Cameron on TV, but fans have said it. Basketball players I've covered over the years have said it. You don't really know how small that environment is, or what I should say is how small the building itself is and how intense the environment can be until you're actually a part of it. So many guys have folded as a result of that building. And I thought the building, the environment, Florida State's lack of mental preparedness for it was the difference because Duke wasn't that good last night. And they still found a way to beat a top 10 team. Matthew Hurt, a lot of people were talking about the call he got at the end of the game. He skies for the rebound, seemed to push two knolls out of the way and elbow another. Before being fouled, it was 66-63. His offensive board led the two free throws that cemented the game. Listen, Hurt only gets that call in Cameron Indoor Stadium. Oh, but Josh, is that officiating bias? No, it's human bias. It is human nature. When coaches talk about home field advantage in football or home court advantage in basketball, wanting to have those stands full, it's not to get an advantage because of the noise that you make, how loud you are. Most times, that doesn't really affect the game. You have silent counts in the NFL and college football that they practice on end. You have ways you work around that non-verbally in basketball, too. No, the home court advantage and home field advantage comes with officiating. It is just unconscious human nature for a referee to give the call, something close to the home team versus the road team, knowing that if you choose the visiting team, giving them the advantage on a close call, you're going to be met with a bunch of people booing you and be met with negative words. It's just Human nature. That's why Matt Hurt gets that call. And that's why home field and home court advantage really matters. That's what coaches value most. Got a huge show today. Jeff Perlman going to be with us. One of the best sports authors of the last few decades. He had a book on the USFL that published in the last year and a half. So I'm interested in his thoughts on the XFL, which rebooted this past weekend. Also, he's written about the Los Angeles Lakers, so we'll get some Kobe Bryant stories out of him as well. I want to shift things to a big day for Tua Tahovaola. Maybe we should just edit that out in post, Robert. Do you want to? Or you th- it wasn't that bad. You want to stick with it? Do it again. It's up to Eventually, you. I'm going to get it right. I think I'm going to. Let me do it one more time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I All already right. reset it. Thank uh, you for that. Let me count down three, two, and... It was a big day for Tua Tahavaloa. Nailed it. Yep. As his three-month CT scan came back very positive. It came back with his hip fracture being healed. Now, it's still going to be a month before he could participate in football activities. The draft, of course... Late April, early May. Tua isn't going to fall to the Carolina Panthers at seven. He's not going to fall because he's the best quarterback in this draft. The health, specifically the hip, was the big concern. When they hear hip fracture, they think about Bo Jackson way back when. But Bo continued to play on that hip, so it's not fair to compare the two. Also, I'd like to think that modern science has changed in the last 30 years or so. 
Right in front of the Carolina Panthers are two quarterback needy teams. Miami, of course, at number five, they were the team all year long that was associated with tanking for Tua before Joe Burrow appeared on anybody's uh, radar. The Los Angeles Chargers just parted ways with Phillip Rivers. The Chargers and Miami picked directly in front of the Panthers. So Tua's not going to get past both those teams. Heck, I'm not even convinced Tua gets to number five and six. There might be a quarterback needy team, a team that's already complete but feels quarterback is the one area they're lacking or a franchise quarterback is the one area they're lacking, might trade up to try and get that number four pick from the New York Giants. I'm talking about the Indianapolis Colts who are picking 12th or 13th. They can jump up maybe to that four spot if they don't feel that Jacoby Brissett can win them the Super Bowl, that their ceiling right now is low with Brissett at that spot. Tampa Bay, closer than the Carolina Panthers are. The Panthers, they have so many needs. They're trying to rebuild with the new coaching staff. They're still putting together their front office. David Tepper, it's a complete reboot. They are not going to trade up to bring in Tua, even if they think he's great because there are so many needs there that you don't want to give up draft capital to extend your rebuilding process, your rebuilding window. So I don't think Carolina would trade up from seven. There are too many great players in this draft. Carolina's going to get one at seven. But Indianapolis is one I think could do that. Maybe Tampa Bay. I'll throw another name out there. Don't tell me it's impossible. The New England Patriots. If the Patriots got into that four spot and drafted Tua, are you counting out New England? Is there a better situation than that? Good offensive line, great situation. And if you're still quabbling with me or squabbling with me on the number one quarterback in this draft debate, I'm taking Tua over Joe Burrow every single time. Just look at the numbers that Tua has produced in college. This is crazy. 87 touchdowns, 11 picks. Do you need more than that? 87 touchdowns, 11 picks. 69% completion. In the SEC. That's pretty nice. He has a far larger sample than Burrow does. More than a season's worth. Going back to the national title win, coming from behind against Georgia. Then the next season, he was tremendous. This year, he was tremendous until he got hurt against Mississippi State, but he was also a little bit banged up before that. He's years younger than Burrow. We've seen how Tua reacts When he's faced with adversity, when he goes down at halftime of the SEC championship game in 2018, he is fully supporting Jalen Hurts with that comeback run. He's a great teammate. He's humble. I like everything about, let's get this right, Robert, Tua Tahavaola. Love everything about him. He's not going to fall to number 11 in the draft. Wake Forest. Faces North Carolina tonight inside Joel Coliseum. We'll be there, and I'll tell you why. We'll learn more about the team that loses than tonight's winner. Next on The Drive. It's The Drive with Josh Graham. Take it from me, you're driving everyone crazy. Mission accomplished on Sports Hub Triad. The Tar Heels are in Winston-Salem. And tonight's game in the Joel is the rare game where the most fascinating narrative is going to follow whoever loses, not whoever wins. 
if it's Danny Manning's Wake Forest Demon Deacons, I think we'll learn everything we need to know about Danny's tenure, and I think it's going to be the final dagger in his time as Wake Forest head coach. Of course, he's in his sixth year. They made the NCAA tournament one time. Danny's record against North Carolina is 0-5. He has no wins against the Tar Heels, none against Duke, none against Virginia as well. If they lose this game, they will fall to 10-14 and with six games left to go with road games remaining in Raleigh, in Chapel Hill, and in Durham. So this will pretty much cement a losing season for Danny's Deacons if they lose tonight. As for the Tar Heels, I'm worried this North Carolina team might quit. I don't say that lightly. Think of all the body blows this team has taken, both physically and emotionally. Of course, you have the injuries with Brandon Robinson, who's not going to play tonight, still dealing with that sprained ankle. He's going to be out for at least another week and a half, too. Of course, Cole Anthony was out a month and a half. Sterling Manley out the year. Anthony Harris out the year. So many guys hurt. Jeremiah Francis for a stretch. Armando Baycott dealing with injuries too. How much can a team take? That's the physical side of it. The emotional side is just these last three games. Really, it's more than that, but look at this three-game sample where you blow a lead against arguably the worst team in the conference, Boston College, at home. Lose that game. You lose against Florida State, which was a massive missed opportunity on the road, missing foul shots, missing dunks, untimely turnovers, an 11-minute run where you didn't hit a field goal. Then, of course, the Duke game, where North Carolina played its best game. They scored more points than any team has scored on Duke this year, and they scored more points than they've scored at any point this year. They played their best game. They were at home. It was their biggest audience. It was something to salvage the season in some's minds. And they blew it. They blew that game at the foul line and with inefficient shots. This is the first game since then. So how are they going to come out? This was Roy Williams after the Duke game talking about what he wants to see from his club. Yeah, if you want to go woe is me and be a little pansy or something, you know, that's your choice. If you want to be a tough competitor... And pansy doesn't mean anything except a guy that doesn't compete, so don't give me any of that stuff, okay? That's what pansy means. The guy's not a competitive guy. We're not going to be like that. And if you want to go do that and uh, go lay in a corner and get in a fetal position and call for your mama, you can. But if you want to be a competitor, you're going to try to try to bust your tail at practice tomorrow and bust your tail at practice on Monday and try to go on the road and see if you can play your tail off on Tuesday. I love that Roy is explaining pansy. What a season it's been where Roy says the thing that makes everybody uncomfortable. Oh, this is my least gifted team, which is leading to David Glenn, who's a guest on today's show, writing a very long athletic story, getting 10 ACC coaches to react to that quote. All of them or all of them said they wouldn't say what Roy said publicly, but all of them agreed with Roy's assessment that they're the least gifted team 
It doesn't strike me that that guy who doesn't apologize for that comment, despite the fact it's led to flames to engulf, uh, for flames to engulf some aspects of North Carolina's PR and things to get on Roy's radar. But he's going to explain what he means when he talks about Pansy. Anyway, he goes on. We have no assurances. Uh, I told him that uh, we've got a chance uh, to play again. I told him we also have a chance to play Duke again. Uh, so, the old coach is not going to freaking quit, and they're not either. Coach again, thank you. There it is. On his way out the door. Somebody noticed that he put his uh, stat sheet, he folded it up and put it into a different pocket than normal. Like, you know, one place is where the stat sheet generally goes, but against Florida State, he maybe put it in a different pocket. That, that's how he ends his press conference. Remember yesterday, ESPN said that that was him walking out of the press conference? If that is the case where he's walking out due to just being filled with unbridled anger, do you think it sounds that polite? Because I don't think so. Yes, Robert? No, I, I agree with you. I don't think it's that polite either. So, but then again, some people were just naturally quieter. Like Sawyer, I don't even know what it would sound like if Sawyer was filled with rage. Like if Sawyer was mad, I feel like he'd just be like, yeah. Dude, that wasn't cool, bro. Why'd you do that? Sounds pretty accurate. I feel like when I'm more mad, I just stay to myself and thoughts just go around my head. Like, if you were going to storm out of here right now, could you give, like, an example of, like, say Josh was like, Sawyer, your your workmanship is just unacceptable. Sawyer strikes me as somebody who gives the silent treatment. Like, if he gets mad at somebody, he's going to just stonewall them by not responding to their texts or calls, which I think is the worst thing. For sure. Like, I'd rather you be outwardly mad at me. Silent treatment? Get out of here. I'll call you back and say, listen, I'm going to tell you this one time and one time only. I'm mad at you. Stop calling. There you go. I've actually <laughs> done that before. You haven't, I haven't made you that mad that you've called me and you said, let me tell you one thing and one thing only. I'm also a phone caller type of guy. Yeah. Which we've learned some of the people who might be incriminated in this NC State notice of allegations case with the uh, NCAA, the stuff with Orlando Early, TJ Gasnola, and Dennis Smith Jr. They're big phone call people too. A lot of phone calls, 44 between the trainer that was delivering the 40K, allegedly, to Dennis Smith Jr. and TJ Gasnola. That's a lot of phone calls. You accuse me of a lot of phone calls. I don't think I've ever called you 44 times in, let's say, a week or two. Or as long as I've had your number. I don't think you've called me 44 I, times. I am a call, a phone call person, though. You've accused me of that. You are. You, I, I accidentally bud-dialed you on the way home yesterday, and then I get a call right back immediately that was like, hey, what'd you need? I was like, I, I, I didn't mean to call you. Wolf writes in. So are you just passive-aggressive, Sawyer? Um, I don't really know what I am, honestly. I don't think I've ever gotten mad at someone and deliberately told them, hey, I'm really mad at you. Like, I'm just like, you know what? I don't need you, and I just... Block them out. Whoa! Type thing. Holy bleep, Sawyer! Yeah. <laughs> that, that's hot. That's red hot right ah. there. My God! You need to calm down right now. <laughs> Jeff Perlman is going to join us from books you might know, such as Football for a Buck on the USFL. Also, he wrote the book Three Ring Circus on 
the new the newest Showtime Lakers with Shaq and Kobe. He also wrote a book on the older Showtime Lakers as well, Brett Favre. He's one of the best sports authors out there. So look forward to chatting with uh, Jeff in just a few minutes. In terms of Wake Forest and North Carolina tonight, my gut is this. North Carolina, in order to be competitive where it matters most, which is now the ACC tournament in Greensboro in about a month, we're going to be at the women's tournament, the men's tournament, the NCAA first and second round. All of those are going to be in Greensboro. As of right now, we're planning to be at the Final Four as well in Atlanta too. We're looking forward to what next month is going to bring. That is where things are going to be ultimately decided for the Tar Heels. I think we'll learn a lot about them tonight. If they lose, there's a good chance that the effort might not be great. Like There is a chance North Carolina could quit tonight. Even though Roy Williams says all that publicly, just body blows. Losing a Carmichael to Wofford. Losing to Clemson at home, blowing a lead. Losing to Georgia Tech by a ton. Losing to Duke that way. Losing to Florida State on the road, missing an opportunity. Losing to Boston College at home. It, how much can a team take emotionally and physically? Because that's what's being put to the test with North Carolina. That all being said, the Tar Heels needed Cole Anthony to look the way he did Saturday to have a shot. And they had a shot because Cole was great shooting over 40%. That's the best Coles played since returning from the injury. That's against a very good Duke defense. I think Cole's going to be great tonight. Remember, Wake Forest was among the top three to land Cole Anthony at the end. I think it was North Carolina, Wake Forest, and Oregon. Cole's decision came down to last year. My gut, Cole is going to go off in the Joel Coliseum, he went on a visit, I think it was for the North Carolina or Duke game last year. Cole went on his visit. From what I was told, he was quiet. He was a little aloof. It didn't surprise many people at Wake Forest. He chose North Carolina, of course, especially how things went with Jalen Horde. So I think Cole Anthony's going to be big tonight. I think North Carolina is going to win the basketball game. But... Would I be surprised if it's close? Would I be surprised if Wake Forest wins? Not at all. I'm more fascinated to see who loses tonight than who wins. I can't think of many examples where that's the case. If you're wondering where Vegas is leaning, they have North Carolina as a point-and-a-half favorite. They are Put on the some money on it. Yeah. Mike Houston still making appearances on this show. Jeff Perlman. The author of Spring Football and Laker Books will tell us what he thinks about the XFL reboot. Will it work? And share some Kobe Bryant stories with us next. We handle our microphones slightly better than the Patriots' Bill Belichick. This is The Drive with Josh Graham. Jeff Perlman's one of my favorite sports authors, and he's kind enough to spend some time in North Carolina with us now, the author of Football for a Buck. I was thinking about him over the weekend as the XFL rebooted because he went through a bunch of great stories and extensive research on the old USFL in the 80s. He's also 
the author of many books. The Brett Favre book stands out. Three Ring Circus, that's something I need to go back and read, especially with the sad news from last month regarding Kobe Bryant. Jeff now joins us, who you can also find on Twitter, at Jeff Perlman. Based on the feedback you've gotten from your book, going through that entire circuit a little over a year ago, Jeff, how much demand do you believe there is for spring football? Uh, not a ton. <laughs> I think you're going to see – you really can judge these things by TV ratings after the first and second weeks and see if people are still watching. Um, it's a tough sell. It's a tough sell because you're not selling big names. You're selling a sport that sort of dominates much of the year um, in a league that is the dominant league in you know sports in the least America, if not the world. So to come along with the second league and say, look, here's more football. And you're like, well, who are the players? Well, they have uh, Cardell Jones and other guys. It's just, it's tough. It's really, really hard. What made the days or make it the early days of the USFL different from the other football leagues that have tried and ultimately failed? Well, spring was the first one. I mean, going spring, going spring is smart, obviously. You can't go head-to-head with the NFL. So that was wise. And um, they added Herschel Walker. They got the biggest name in football uh, coming out of college. So the USFL had Herschel Walker, and the USFL has a bunch of guys from Delaware and, you know, Florida A&M. Like, it's, it's, just, you, it's hard. It's really hard to get people to watch uh, professional football when they don't know the players. Um, and the league seems kind of weird. It's just hard. It's hard. You, USFL had a lot. USFL had name coaches, which which the XFL does too, which is smart. USFL had a lot of name players. They got Craig James out of SMU right out the bat. They had Herschel Walker right out the bat. A lot of NFL veterans right out the bat. Um, and that kind of helped them at least early. It's Jeff Perlman who's with us here on Sports Sub Triant. And I, I acknowledge that this question might not be that relevant to the audience right here in the triad, but it seems, nationally speaking, there is a hole, a 10-week hole where something might be able to uh, profit, something might be able to thrive in terms of a sports league, whether that's the NBA growing or something else being put there. College basketball is big in the month of March with the brackets, and it's huge 12 months out of the year where uh, our audience is at. But do you think there is room for some other league, be it football or something else, to thrive in the months of February, March, and April? What do you think? I think it's tough. I mean, I also think like, the NBA has ballooned. So the, NFL, the NBA has really become something it, it wasn't, whatever, 30, 20 years ago, where it's an enormous. It's not quite the NFL, but it's getting closer and closer to the NFL. Um, it's just hard. I just think the thing is, like, with all sports, we need a rest. I do. I really think most fans need a rest. Like, I, I love the NBA, but once the NBA is over, I'm kind of glad not to have basketball for a while. It's like, it's like if you eat your favorite food every day, you get tired of your favorite food. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to go to my favorite uh, Mexican restaurant every week. I want it to be special, and I feel like if you overload anything, it starts losing its sort of pizzazz. I feel like baseball. A lot of people I know are like, why does it have to be 162 games? It's so much baseball. And I kind of feel like with football, I just don't know. I mean, I think the XFL has a lot of great things going for it. Oliver, uh, Oliver Luck is running it. He's super smart. They have a TV network behind it, super smart. Um, the markets seem pretty wise. There are a lot of good positives to it. But the track record of an alternative football league in America just is very, very We important. just need a rest. That's a perfect way to say it. It's kind of like the argument 
against specialization in sports, where some people say, I- I'm, I'm not recruiting the guy who only plays football and plays basketball year-round. That's not what I'm doing here. I want you to play multiple sports. It's just healthy. You get a rest, and there are more injuries that happen when you play a certain sport and you specialize. And in this case, it's, hey, I mean, football, it probably hurts the NFL to a degree, or it's certainly going to hurt this uh, XFL league if you just have a little bit too much. We just got done with the Super Bowl. We might need a little bit of a rest. Jeff Perlman with us. He's on Twitter, at Jeff Perlman. Um, What's your favorite... Kobe Bryant story you heard or learned while writing the book um, Three Ring Circus or even since then? Well, so first of all, uh, one mistake in the intro, not a big deal. The book doesn't come out until September, so it hasn't come out yet. So, uh, and it's, it's, it's a weird thing because I worked on this book for two years and really sort of studied Kobe Bryant at length and then one day he dies and it's, you know, preposterously sad and tragic and, and everything. Um, he was a uh, he was just a basketball killer, you know. He was he was Jordan times a thousand in some ways in his competitiveness and, and viciousness on the court. Um, you know, there's a uh, back in 1997 after so after his rookie year, he played he played on the Lakers summer league team heading into the 96 97 season. Then 97 that summer he played again on the Lakers summer league team out here in California, and. Um, you know, he hadn't enjoyed his rookie year that much. He didn't get to play that much. He was a bench player. He was frustrated that Dale Harris, the coach, didn't give him much time. And that summer league team, one of the other guys on the team was Jimmy King, who had been on the Fab Five. He was on the Fab Five in Michigan. And Kobe looked at Jimmy King and just decided, this guy, I am, I am attacking this guy. And every day in workouts, every day in practice, he would just talk trash to Jimmy King, decimate Jimmy King, because he saw Jimmy King as someone – who had what he wanted, which was fame, celebrity, a certain bit of basketball royalty, and he just killed Jimmy King. And the number of I, Kobe just destroyed Jimmy King stories I heard were amazing. Um, and that was kind of him. Like he was, I wrote about ninety six to 04, and he was just all about winning and destroying you and taking you apart. And one teammate after another in practice, who he didn't respect, he would just take apart. Um, and that viciousness which I think later on in life kind of became actually a very loving and endearing human being. But that viciousness early on, combined with his athleticism and his intellect, made him sort of the great legendary player who we now mourn. As I mentioned, you've written about this team with the Showtime book, and you said Three Ring Circus is coming out later this year. Um, how, how does the layout of this book and the process of you trying to market it change with the news last month? That's a great question. Uh, I don't know. It's uh, it's weird. I mean, it's really weird, right? Because right now Kobe is being celebrated as he should be. And people are remembering Kobe and the great things. And he was this wonderful dad, which he was. This great husband, which he was. A smart businessman, an Academy Award winner. And you have this book, and it deals specifically with 96 to, to 04. And those are the years where Kobe was kind of a shark. And Kobe could be a jerk and harsh and mean and cruel. And it was all part of his development. It was really his developmental years. You know, you have to remember, he grew up in Italy. He didn't grow up in America. He came here as a high schooler. Um, he, didn't all, he didn't fit in with his other teammates all the time. It was really a maturation process. So I think when I promote the book, part of it is explaining, look, this is not a takedown of Kobe. It's an explanation of who he was during a period of his life. And hopefully people understand that. How do it's you, weird. It's very weird. It's how, very weird. how do you feel about the feedback towards 
Gail King that you feel towards other people who try to say we need to button up some of the other rigid aspects of somebody's legacy. I'm not even just talking about 2003, but what I'm talking about is what you're referring to, that era where he was more rigid before he became beloved. How do you, where do you side and how to handle that? Well, it's an interesting question. I faced a lot of, I wrote a Walter Payton biography called Sweetness about eight years ago. And it came out after, after uh, Walter Payton had died. And Sports Illustrated ran an excerpt of the book uh, about three weeks before the book came out. And the excerpt was, was a piece passage from the end of the book that talked about Walter Payton's sort of depression and infidelity. And the backlash was, how dare you, how dare you write about these things about Walter Payton? And then people saw the whole book and they saw, oh, actually, it's a, it's a full explanation of his life and, you know, understood. I just, um, I understand the backlash right now with Kobe Bryant because it's really fresh and it's really raw and his family is still dealing with it and coming to grips with it. And I think, I think it's okay. Like there were people the day after Kobe died who were, who were, who were uh, tweeting about the rape case in Colorado. And I just thought, you know, we can, we can wait a little bit. We can let his family and friends and the fans mourn before we sort of examine his legacy. But that doesn't mean we don't examine his legacy. I just think it's raw right now. It's raw. So we don't have to rush to everything. It's not, we live in a culture right now where everything is rushed. Get on Twitter, put it out, put out every thought in your mind, and I'm as guilty as that as anyone. We don't always have to do that. Gunslinger is great. Football for a buck is great. And I'm looking forward to seeing Three Ring Circus. What can you tell us in terms of when that can be expected? No, it's coming out in September. And, uh, yeah, hopefully it goes okay. I'm nervous about it. I've never been this nervous about a book. So well, I'm okay. interested to see how you feel when we get closer to it being published. Perhaps we can talk then. But in the meantime, I appreciate Definitely. you spending time here. All right. Take care. You got it. That's Jeff Perlman kind enough to join us. Um, the book, it's going to be interesting. Three Ring Circus. How do you think that's going to be met? Because, what did he say, September? towards the end of the year that's going to be published? Is that enough time where people will be okay with a book being published and it talking about Kobe being a bit of a bleep hole? It's okay if you're a bit of a bleep hole, right? Yeah, I would want him to tell the accurate story behind it. I wouldn't want him to candy coat it just because of how things ended. But then again, look at the movies that have been put out in Hollywood. Bohemian Rhapsody and this... One that came out on Elton John, Rocket Man. You got Queen and you got Elton John who are actually a part of these projects. And I doubt anything is going to cover the rigider points. Like, they didn't go heavy on the HIV AIDS stuff with Freddie Mercury. We got Live Aid at, at the end of that, at that movie, but nobody wanted to hear about that. Right? The Motley Crue uh, documentary that they did on Netflix was pretty good. Though. Documentaries, I think, are. Well, different. I mean, not. Do- I mean, not this documentary. Whatever their movie the was, you know what I mean. Where it's like a, a movie doc or whatever. Like I don't know what the so technical term is. Uh, a biopic. There you go. You. Back to okay. the drive with I haven't Josh seen that. Graham. It's very good. You got some time. Damn, I'm not happy about this. Coming up. This is so. Why I feel NC so bad. Wish you could share it. Forget it. I'm gonna be selfish. That's Coach K talking about how much he loves this Duke team. And I think the source of his smittenness last night is just how much Duke has exceeded everybody's expectation. Not just 
all of us in the media, but Coach K himself, who has been pretty reserved throughout the year, giving public praise to his guys. Until yesterday, he's been hesitant to say that this team is a contender, that this team is one of his better teams. He's always kind of undercut things a bit. Said, all right, we're a little bit uh, less developed than what this team's been in the past, what some of these guys coming in have been, some of the prospects that we've had. 11 lottery picks in the last five drafts. Duke not missing an NCAA tournament in the last 25 years, or it'll be 25 years this year. But it's true. This team, it is less mature. It's less, I think, decorated. It's it's less talented. Last year, Coach K, he made no bones about it. Zion Williamson, right from the jump, a special talent, unlike anything else I've dealt with. R.J. Barrett, a very good player. He had no problem anointing those guys, building up those guys. He didn't feel it was necessary, this is my opinion, to put pressure, put extra pressure on this team. After the Louisville game, Coach K said this team needs to grow up quickly. And what's happened since then, six straight wins for the Devils, including... Four games in 10 days. Three of those four games being on the road. And each of those games presented their own challenge. Syracuse, they were lighting up the scoreboard. Scored 88 points. More points than Duke has allowed in regulation this year. Still found a way to win that. They overlooked Boston College and learned a lesson there. They faced a buzzsaw of a team in North Carolina on Saturday. Still, the leadership of Trey Jones, they maneuvered past that and they became tougher as a result. They've become a tougher team. In fact, it reminds me a lot of Louisville. Louisville, the big difference between the Cardinals this year and last year's team is toughness. It's maturity. Last year's team, they lost to Duke, blowing that lead in the Yum Center, and then just spiraled into an abyss down the stretch and lost in the first round of the NCAA tournament. Duke, they lost a tough game to Louisville. But since then, they've been great. And last night might have been their best win of the season. Beating a top 10 ranked team and doing so less than 48 hours after having an emotional come-from-behind win against North Carolina? That's pretty impressive. But Coach K wasn't done. No, not by a long shot. Here's more of him just showering praise onto his team. I love my team. I love my guys. They're 18, 19, 20. These guys are developing, man. Anyway, and they they were terrific tonight. Not many teams would have won tonight after Saturday. Yeah, I'm so damn proud of them, man. I, I wish you could feel what I feel. I hope that you'd have your jobs and you could have a moment where you could feel as fulfilled and proud of a group as I do of this group. Is there more? He was smitten, man. He was feeling the holiday spirit. Friday, it's Valentine's Day. He's wanting to show love to his team, and he's wanting to voice it publicly. That's what he's wanting to do. So here's more from Coach K. Man, they, they've, they've really, they're really developing into a good team. They're, they're, I, I really love these guys and because it's different guys. 
You know, we don't have a starting lineup. We, we, have, a, we have a team. And, and some, sometimes when you have a starting lineup, you put a ceiling on the other guys and ego and opportunity and all that. And this, it hasn't happened here. Are you taking issue with something that Coach K is saying there, Robert? No, just uh, another caller wanted to let you know that this Duke team is not great and uh, they won't sniff a championship. All right. Man, people, they get so uncomfortable when we talk about Duke. Like, we, we had the Tar Heel stuff just a short while ago. What are we supposed to do? Like, North Carolina, they are three games under five hundred. Like, what are we supposed to do with this team? We supposed to talk about Wake Forest, who's also 10 and 13? Like, they're playing tonight. We're going to be at the game. We'll, we'll spend plenty of time on it tomorrow. Duke's good. We talk about who's good. And yes, I punched my microphone twice you this segment. You beat the hell out of it. Just go ahead. Give <laughs> you it another know what? one. Here's what we're going to do. To appease the people that dislike Duke, I want you to put something together musically, something going on with Valentine's Day related to what Coach K is doing with this team. The way he's no, no, sub- no, no, the no, way he's no, celebrating no. Duke and speaking about them post coitally, it sounds like you need to set things up. I'll like, do it. See if you can put something together musically to appease these people. While I get to the basketball stuff here, I want this done in the next few minutes because we got David Glenn going to join us in about ten minutes. Alex O'Connell and Javin Delorier. This is another area where I think. This Duke team's exceeded Coach K's expectations. They escaped the bench somehow the last two games. Like, it looked like they were out of the rotation altogether. Alex O'Connell, I thought it was dunzo for him. I didn't think he was going to be back in the eight-man. But dire circumstances changed things. He comes in with 12, 13 minutes left to go and starts hitting Threes against North Carolina last night. He had two of the biggest shots of the game. It's 52-50. Florida State's leading. Duke, they they feel like they're starting to relent a bit. Alex O'Connell hits a big two-point jumper to tie it and then hits a big three. Javin Delorier was awesome defensively. He had six rebounds last night, playing a lot of minutes. So those guys might be more involved. While Jack White, the last two games, has played less minutes. It's a different team, and Coach K has communicated that. Let's go to Turpentine Mike. Who wants in on the topic? Turpentine Mike, do I have it right? You have a joke to tell us? Hey, I, just, I don't mind, dude. Just their fans. So I'm just going to tell you a joke. Uh, how many uh, Duke fans does it take to change a light bulb? How many? <laughs> well, one, the call to maintenance man. And two, the chant and make fun of him when he gets there. <laughs> Thank you, Turpentine, Mike. All right, Robert, I've given you enough time. Give me something musically with what we just heard with Mike Krzyzewski. Damn. I love my team. Damn, he loves that team. I love my guys. Ooh, he loves his guys. They're 18, 19, 20. Ooh, barely legal. These guys are developing, man. Feeling out those jerseys real nice. We have an old-fashioned team. We don't expect to kiss until the third date. Some of you are going to put out. And some of you won't, but that's okay because... I love my team. Oh, yeah, baby. 
I'm not gonna cut this music off. And you shouldn't. Barry White. That's the music to set the mood the mood to, baby. When we're talking about Duke. I wish we could have got Turpentine Mike to tell his joke over this music. I think I might do the read in this music. Give it a shot. Maybe do a tease very quickly. Oh, don't tease me. (laughs) (laughs) What defense does NC State have against the NCAA at this point? DG's going to fill us in, baby. Next on the drive. Want to become a real sports fan? Leave it right here. It turns everyone it touches into raging psychotics. All things sports. Well, sometimes. On the Drive with Josh Graham. I don't have a law background. And I also don't have 30 plus years of experience covering the ACC. So I bring in David Glenn to help fill in some of the details of how NC State fans should be viewing the Wolfpack's battle with the NCAA as the Wolfpack last summer received a notice of allegations dating back to the Mark Gottfried allegations and the Dennis Smith recruiting. A response was given to the NCAA from NC State and then NC State received a response back where the NCAA laid out evidence of a $40,000 payment from Adidas exec TJ Gasnola to former NC State assistant coach Orlando Early to give to an NC State trainer to pass along to Dennis Smith Sr. Everybody following along? The biggest detail I took away from the response based on everything I've written, NC State doesn't seem to be denying anymore that Early received the $40,000 from the Adidas consultant, TJ Gasnola. That seems to be significant to me. Also, there's no question that the coaches, everybody involved in this, knew each other. There are text messages, there are phone calls, and there are a lot of them during this entire process that lead to there being a lot of smoke. And a lot of people I think need to know, and DG, maybe you can add to this, the Committee of Infractions for the NCAA, it's not like the court of law. I don't think you need to prove something beyond reasonable doubt in order for a ruling to come down that might not be favorable of NC State. So I feel like NC State could be in danger here to be hit with a significant punishment because we still see those level one charges being alleged by the NCAA with its recent response here. How defenseless is NC State at this point? Well, I wouldn't say they're defenseless, but... Certainly, there are major facts against them, and they are fighting an uphill battle the rest of the way. And it's good to be with you, as always, Josh. One question I get a lot from state fans is, if the Wolfpack just lawyers up the way the Tar Heels lawyered up in the AFAM case, why can't the Pack just get off the hook entirely? The way the Tar Heels, of course, ended up getting no sanctions whatsoever from the NCAA. And whereas there are some parallels between the cases, including both schools lawyering up to steal that phrase, the biggest difference is the underlying wrongdoing accused of, accused in the Carolina case, had to do with academics as they spilled into athletics. And NCAA rules have never been a great fit for governing that. And the underlying incident in this case is paying a player with the help of an assistant basketball coach and maybe even the head coach. 
there's nothing gray area. There's nothing complicated. There's nothing confusing. Old school, new school, in between the history of the NCAA, it's always against the rules and a cardinal sin for you know a player or his family, a prospect or his family to get money. That jeopardizes his eligibility, obviously. And when a coach from the college level is accused of being a part of it or two, you know, that makes it an even more egregious sin in the eyes of the NCAA. So that's the biggest problem for the Wolfpack. There's a lot of evidence that this happened, but to, you know, as they should, they're forcing the NCAA to try to prove their case. They're bringing up some technicalities that they're going to argue uh, in front of the committee whenever that next meeting takes place. And they're saying, well, you've connected some dots here, but you haven't connected all the dots because we don't even see evidence as to who accepted the money on behalf of the Dennis Smith Jr. family. And the NCAA is saying, you're right, we don't have every last connecting of the dots, but common sense tells you that if the money went from Adidas consultant to an NC State coach and the Smith family moved from government-assisted housing into their own house around the same time, well, just like a jury is allowed to connect the dots so is the NCAA Committee on Infractions. And I'll also go a step further with this. NC State, I don't think it's coincidental, hired the same law firm that North Carolina used in its battle with the NCAA, and I'm glad you're spelling out the differences there. But is it another difference, DG, that the FBI was involved in this and that the FBI and federal government have subpoena power unlike the NCAA, which means that they could have evidence, more substantial evidence, that you wouldn't get in a normal NCAA investigation? Well, it's a huge difference, and oddly enough, I mean, this is not funny to NC State fans, I realize that, but funny, curious, the lack of the NCAA's ability to use all of the documents that they wanted to use in the UNC case actually led to a change in NCAA rules where for the first time they said if there are other proceedings, if there are independent investigations, if there's a criminal justice matter, if there's a civil justice matter, if there's a governmental investigation, for the first time ever, the NCAA compliance people are going to be allowed to use certain types of that evidence. Not every last shred of everything, but they basically opened the door to something that they were not allowed to consider before. Well, guess what? The NC State case is one of the first cases that has put all this FBI evidence in front of the NCAA that they otherwise would not have had. And when this T.J. Gasnola guy, Adidas consultant, is under investigation, and that entire FBI, you know, federal government investigation of funneling money from shoe companies to prospects and their families, well, NC State wasn't the only school caught up in that. But any evidence that made its way into the trial under these new rules, is now allowed to be considered by the NCAA. And guess what? The T.J. Gasnola evidence is a huge part of the foundation of this case against NC State. If this same set of circumstances happened years ago, the NCAA would have had to connect more of these dots all by itself. Instead, it was handed about 75% of their work just because the, the new rule allows for this FBI evidence. So, it's that's what makes it harder for NC State here. Uh, it wasn't FBI evidence in the UNC case. It was different types of documentation. But yeah, the, the, the rules have changed in a way 
that makes the Wolfpack's defense a lot more difficult. And for anybody who really digs into the details of this case, there's a lot of evidence that Orlando Early was participating in this, that Mark Gottfried, who's now at Cal Northridge, also had a role in this. Not all of that evidence is in front of the NCAA, however, and that's, of course, something that the Wolfpack and its attorneys are trying to exploit right now. David Glenn with us, our early afternoon host on Twitter, at David Glenn Show. If you have any law questions, you can tweet him, at David Glenn Show. I'm not sure if he can help you get out of like a speeding ticket or anything like that, but maybe you could try calling his show right before we go on the air earlier uh, uh, in the afternoon if you plan to go that route. North Carolina is facing Wake Forest tonight in their first game since the Classic on Saturday in Chapel Hill. The Tar Heels, I I really feel like this game, DG, it's the rare instance where whoever loses, I think, will have the more interesting narrative follow them. Roy Williams says, my team's not going to quit. I'm not going to quit. But I'm fascinated to see what type of effort they put in in the Joel Coliseum tonight, what they have left, because we saw what Duke had left last night against Florida State with shorter rest. And Wake Forest, meanwhile, Danny Manning is 0 for 5 against North Carolina in his career. If they lose this game, it pretty much cements a losing season for the Deeks. They'd be 10 and 14 with six to go and games in Raleigh, Chapel Hill, and Durham the rest of the way. In your mind, what do you expect we'll learn tonight in Winston-Salem? I think we'll learn whether the Tar Heels are a legitimate threat to make something of this season. And what I mean is, I think Wake fans, while they'd love to win this game, of course. I mean, some are saying, we know how bad things are. We know this is going to be a fifth losing season in six years under Danny Manning. We know most of that fan base is ready for Wake to turn the page on Danny Manning. But let's go out and beat the hated Tar Heels tonight. The other side of the coin is that the Tar Heels, when they're at their best, when they're healthy, they're actually a team good enough to push Florida State to the wire, to push Duke to the wire before falling. And Wake Forest's ceiling is simply not that high. If Carolina lays an egg tonight in Winston-Salem, the way they lost at home to Boston College with Cole Anthony 10 days ago, well, then there is a 0% chance that they can avoid you know, the first losing season that Roy Williams has ever been associated with as a college coach, a streak that goes back to 1978 when he was an assistant to Dean Smith at Carolina. If the Heels win after putting up a fight at Florida State and almost beating Duke and Chapel Hill, well, they get Wake again. They get NC State at home again. They have potential wins against Virginia at home, Notre Dame on the road. They can creep out of this 10-13 and 13 hole. They can make a run at whatever, maybe they're 15 and 16 as they head to the NC, at the ACC tournament. And like 10 years ago, the only NCAA tournament Roy has missed in his last 30 years as the head coach, at least those Tar Heels 10 years ago made the NIT with a 500 record and, and made a run to the NIT title game. If Carolina can't beat Wake tonight, there's no way they're going to make anything of this season. And I think they realize that. And they've got to avoid the kind of train wreck they had 10 days ago against Boston College. Two things you need to check out from DG in addition to listening to the David Glenn Show noon to 3 right here on Sports Hub Triad. Uh, it's our ACC rankings, 1 through 15, that you can find at accsports.com along with Brian Geisinger's. For the first time this year, I think we're all in agreement 1 through 9 on those rankings, surprisingly. Wow. Um, also, you need to check out DG's story of the Athletic Carolinas because it's fascinating stuff. I love stories like this. The headline, 
What does recruiting and NBA evidence suggest about Roy Williams' least gifted comments about the Tar Heels? That dates back to the comments he made after the Georgia Tech game last month, calling this team his least talented team, or excuse me, least gifted team he's coached since returning to Chapel Hill. You talked to 10 ACC coaches, and there was a little bit of conflict on whether they had an issue voicing it publicly, but everybody was together agreeing with the sentiment that this is the least talented Carolina team. What was the most interesting thing you learned talking to those 10 ACC coaches? I think they're just savvy enough that unlike some fans who just want to take shots at the school they like the least or the coach they like the least, you know, not all four-star prospects are alike. Not all five-star prospects are alike. And many, all of those coaches, of course, have competed against the Tar Heels. You know, a couple of the tidbits are, one, half of them didn't want to go on the record and say anything. You know, they just didn't want to get into Roy Williams' business. But all 10 coaches that I talked to said Roy is factually correct. This is the least gifted team he has had in his 17 years at Carolina. And whereas there are some years where you trot out five McDonald's All-Americans in the starting lineup at UNC under Roy Williams, uh, I looked at the future NBA players. In some years, Roy has seven on his roster. Right now he has one, maybe two at most. I looked at top 50 high school prospects. In some years, Roy has had 10, 10 top 50 high school signees out of his 13 scholarship players. This year he has two, Cole Anthony and Armando Baycott. So whether you view it by recruiting rankings, which some fans are, or you view it by future NBA talent, which others have looked at, or you just view it as the eyeball test. You know, these professional head basketball coaches and assistant basketball coaches, all the numbers and, and even the eyeball test all agree. All 10 coaches did agree on that part. This is the least talented team. Some of them said not only in Roy Williams' 17 years in Chapel Hill as the head coach, but any other team Roy Williams or Dean Smith was associated with in, you know, a half century of UNC basketball. There was that bad Matt Doherty year, of course. But otherwise, Roy was right. Should he have said it out loud or not? That's a different debate, and the coaches disagreed. But was he right? factually that this is his least gifted team anyone who's willing to do their homework and look at the numbers is going to come to the same conclusion that those 10 coaches did that I did and that Roy Williams himself did and and there's just not as much talent as there usually is right now in Chapel Hill and the losses are just painful I argue that heartbreak is a lot more painful than just sheer disappointment the Doherty team's Doherty wasn't a Hall of Fame basketball coach. Those teams weren't picked number two in the preseason poll like this team was. So when you go throughout the last 50 years, you can make the argument that this is the most miserable season because here are the seasons North Carolina's missed the NCAA tournament in the last 50 years. Of course, you noted 2010, 2002, 2003 under Doherty. Then you have to go back to 1974, 1973, 1971, 1970. And those years you had to win the ACC tournament in order to get into the field. So, really, in the last 50 years, four of the seven times North Carolina hasn't made the tournament, they had to win the AC2 tournament to qualify. We didn't know what an at-large bid was. So that really speaks to just how great this program has been and just how painful this season is altogether. DG, appreciate you spending time here, as always, every single Tuesday. Look forward to hearing your show tomorrow. Appreciate you spending here. Thanks, Josh. Always fun to be with you, bud. Take care. That's David Glenn, our early afternoon host. He's on Twitter at David Glenn Show. Read his stuff. The Athletic Carolina is also ACCSports.com. David Tepper. He is a talking 
and meeting with reporters, talking about Cam Newton. Cam Newton, we played the sound. He's He went on Radio Row and was asked if he's going to be a Carolina Panther. He says, absolutely, I'm going to be a Carolina Panther. So David Tepper, who has a media event, he was talking, I think it was a charity event. He's giving some money to an elementary school, over $100,000. I think twice a year he gives money to teachers. It's something that's close to his heart. Growing up in Pittsburgh, he's had family that were in that profession. This is how it sounded. This is uh, audio that we've, uh, this is courtesy, I think, of Jordan Rodrigue. Um, this is David Tepper talking about Cam Newton said again and again and again about it's a question of uh, how healthy is foot and otherwise and that's still the number one uh, overwhelming thing to see how healthy is and how we can figure out when he's healthy or not and you know everything comes from that Dave have other teams reached out inquiring about his trade possibility if he's available for trade and if so was that something that you'd be open for you know I, I could ask Nicole she answers the phone in our house but uh, no I haven't heard about that so let me, let me stop that real quick okay some would think that's him dodging a question. No, that's David Tepper knowing the rules of the NFL and being a bit charming in the process. It is not the start of the new league year. Carolina cannot trade Cam Newton today. They can't. David Tepper, in turn, because he's not able to trade Cam Newton and you're not allowed to make trades or even inquire about trades until the start of the new league year. He had to deflect that. If he answered the question and said, yeah, I've been taking calls, teams inquiring about Cam, that would be the definition of tampering. He can't do that. So, at this point, I can't tell other reporters what to do. Obviously, that's going to get a response on this radio show. We're going to talk about these things anytime David Tepper opens his mouth. But what good is going to come out of asking whether teams have traded, knowing that he can't talk about it? Like It's like asking a basketball coach, hey, can you talk about this recruit that you're looking at? No, the rules say I can't. I can't talk about the recruit. Like, know the rules. It's that simple. Like, the Panthers, they are so smart here. Tapper, Tur- uh, Marty Herney. They're so smart not talking about Cam. Keeping their mouth shut about it. Because, Tapper's right, until he's healthy, they have nothing. You know, he's not a doctor. Cam's not a doctor. They're going to see how healthy he is next month. And when the new league year begins, they're going to get calls. It's going to happen. I don't know if he's going to be traded or not, but he's, they're going to get calls. So that's my biggest takeaway from what David Tepper just said right there. Anything to add to that, Robert? Nope. I got a real humdinger for taking it to the house, though. Oh, yeah? What do you got? Uh, Why NASA lied to you, and you guys ate it up, hook, line, and sinker. Hook, line. (laughs) We take it to the house next.